This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for Friday, March 22nd. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Thanks for joining us. He came to Capitol Hill more than two decades ago and quickly rose up the ranks as a Senate staffer. Earlier this month, Don Stewart stepping down as Senator Mitch McConnell's longtime communications director. He was the man behind the senator who helped develop the strategy and shape the message. Around Washington, everyone knows him simply as Stu. We sat down with him in Senator McConnell's hideaway office inside the U.S. Capitol. Don Stewart, after more than two decades as a staffer on Capitol Hill, this is your final day. What are your thoughts? What are you thinking? I'm thinking back a lot of what we've done over the last uh, 20 years and how things have changed. I talked a little bit about it last night, about the differences when I got here and when I'm leaving, and sort of the dramatic changes that have really accelerated over the last five or 10 years. So it's nostalgic, but I'm, I'm excited and happy and the Senate's in good hands. When you walked through the Capitol this morning yeah. for the last time, what went through your head? Well, it hit me that what a fantastic place this is. I always remind people that this is, it's a unique place, and people save up all year to come and visit this building, and so they should always take advantage of actually being here and seeing it. And I told people that if you ever go to the Rotunda and you're bored, it's time to go. I've never hit that point, and I still try to go there every day, and I will every time I come back. But it's just a beautiful building and with a lot of wonderful people that I've come to know. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, I can't tell people enough how much they should come and just look through the building, spend a little time in the rotunda, especially after the tourists leave in the afternoon. It's quiet and beautiful, and you should go check it out. We'll talk about all of this in just a moment. But I want to go back to the Senate floor. Uh, A rare occasion where your boss, the Senate Republican leader, got emotional as he said farewell to your service here on Capitol Hill. We carried it live on C-SPAN 2. Let's watch. So, for more than 12 years, I entrusted Stu with my words and my goals and my reputation. And he's never let me down. He never flagged. He never slowed. Our watchdog never lost a step. Totally trustworthy. Completely reliable, unbelievably competent, the greatest luxury a leader could have. Don Stewart, that was your boss, Senator Mitch McConnell. And I should point out everyone here calls you Stu, correct? Yeah. What did you think? Well, it wasn't the first time I made a senator cry, uh, but uh, it was a fantastic speech. and It was really generous of him. I really appreciated it. My mom really loved it. My daughter really loved it. And that was a really nice, nice way to leave. Did you know he was going to say those words? I didn't. I knew he'd speak. I've edited literally thousands of speeches in my time. And that one is one that I didn't get to edit. I didn't see it in advance. So it was, it, it hits you more when you, when you don't know what's coming. And it was a beautiful speech. What did he tell you after the speech? Anything? He said, good job. He appreciated it. We spoke again later in the evening and we had a little time to ourselves and he was very generous with me. He relies on his staff a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, he said he has an extended family outside. You never really leave the McTeam, as we call it. Uh, He has an extended family outside of the building, former staffers that have been with him over decades that are still uh, come around and friendly and helpful, and they're never really gone. Uh, They're always around, and he appreciates that. He's been very good to so many staffers for so many years. 
I told him last night that I really appreciated him not being a jerk or a crook or a creep, and all of that is true. And he doesn't care what you look like or where you come from. If you do a great job, you're on the team, and you're always on the team. How did you first come to the U.S. Capitol? Because you worked for a number of other Republican senators before you moved to this office. I did. My first job was for Senator Paul Coverdale, the late Senator Coverdale. I worked for him in his state office, uh, one of his state offices. I was the regional director in East Georgia. When I got out of the Army, I was in Georgia, and I got on with his office there and worked for him there, and then they moved me up here. And sadly, the day I first started here was the day he passed away, had an aneurysm. And then I moved on to other senators. I went to Senator Phil Graham's office and worked for him for a couple years. Learned more than you could ever possibly learn about media relations and communications and speaking. And then when he retired, I went with Senator John Cornyn, who won that seat and stayed with him for about three years. And then Senator McConnell, when he was whip and about to become leader, asked me to come over and help him set up this office, the leader's office. What's the key to effective communication? So much has changed in the last 20 years in terms of social media, sure. cable, uh, a rapid pace, 24-7 news cycle. Mm -hmm. Well, it is really, as you said, accelerated. We went from, when I first started in the Senate, we had fax machines and typewriters and pagers. When I started in the leader's office, the iPhone didn't exist. A week after I started in the leader's office, Twitter debuted. So life has not been the same since. It's a lot faster. There's a lot more pressure on the media to get a story out first, not just in the paper now, but on Twitter first. So the time between action and notification has shrunk to milliseconds. So it's a unique challenge for communicators now is to handle that shortened time frame and the, and the response times and being able to manage um, from what the actual facts are to what gets reported and how that changes and develops over the day because there is something instantaneously online. So how does that change the job of a press secretary, a communications director, whether you're with Mitch McConnell or a freshman House member? Well, it certainly extended the day. Uh, when I worked for uh, Senator Graham many years ago, our communications director left at 6 p.m. every day. And he didn't hear from him again. Now, there's no leaving at 6 p.m. Even if you leave the building, you're not leaving. The phone's on all the time. It's 24 hours a day. You get, I get calls sometimes in the middle of the night, weekends, crises happen anytime. A terrorist attack doesn't ask me if it's convenient. You know, an announcement from a, a member doesn't ask me if it's convenient for me at that point. If it happens that time, it doesn't wait till the next morning. Things used to wait till the next morning. If it wasn't on the nightly news, nothing else was going to get reported until the next day. Now, it's constant. You don't have time anymore. So the news cycle has, has shrunk to where it's no longer a cycle. It's just constant. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge for communicators is being able to manage their time and being able to manage the response to things that happen external forces. They don't have that luxury anymore of waiting and developing a response and getting you know, good decisions and having meetings. It's instant now. So you have to have the ability to respond instantly while you craft a message or while you craft a, a response and a battle plan. You have to have something immediate first. And that's something we never had before um, And back in the days of faxes and pagers. In announcing that you were leaving, and we'll talk about your next job in just a moment, but uh, Politico pointed out that uh, you're an Army veteran, as you just mentioned, and a former bouncer, <laughs> which puts you in good stead for this job. Oh, it's perfect. Uh, I learned quite a little bit. As a bouncer, you learn a lot of people skills. You learn how to convince people to do things that they don't want to do. You know, most people, when they're in a fight, really don't want to be fighting, but they can't back down. So you have to have an external force like me to step in and explain to you why you shouldn't be doing that. And a lot of those same skills 
convincing people not to resort to something bad translate over into dealing with media and politicians and everything else. And then the army, the discipline, and the camaraderie is something that we have here. It's very similar as a Senate staffer. You have the same sort of family atmosphere of people you work with. It's a bubble within a bubble, as a friend told me. You're working in a, in a building with a group of people in D.C., and you're just constantly around the same people, and they become your family. You spend time with them. You know their children. You know their parents. And it, it is a family atmosphere, much the way it is living in a military barracks and working with your colleagues, and you rely on your colleagues. So your friends are also people that you rely on all the time, inside and outside of the building. So a lot of that translated over to being a center staffer. Where did you grow up? Riverside, California. It's uh, the Inland Empire. It's where the smog settles from L.A. Uh, but I grew up there. I left there in the 80s. Uh, but that's, I spent all my early life there. Is that where you were a bouncer? No, that was in Savannah when I got out of the Army. Uh, I w- went back to school, and I needed a job to pay for school. Uh, between my GI Bill and being a bouncer, I was able to pay for school without a student loan debt. And why the Army? Everybody in my family, all, most members of my family were in the military at one point or another, most of them in the Army. Um, Army was just a great institution. Uh, I was never going to be a sailor. That wasn't for me. But uh, the Army was just, it's the best branch, first of all. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And I'd go back in a second. What did it teach you beyond the discipline that you just mentioned? The discipline, relying on other people, uh, making sure that your decisions really matter. Consequences really matter. A small mistake, you know, a small unplanned for event has an enormous consequence sometimes. Also, rely, you rely on what they call ranger buddies, or I think in the SEALs they call them swim buddies. You always have somebody that you can rely on all the time, but you also have to be the person that they rely on all the time. You have to be there no matter what. And that's something that happens here, too. I, have, I can't tell you how many people come with a problem or they have something, that, a challenge that they don't know how to fix. They may not have seen before, but I have, and vice versa. There's always somebody I can go to who's already seen it, already made that mistake. For instance, when I worked for Senator Graham a long time ago, I deleted his entire website about a week after I started. You want to talk about a, a Malax moment. I freaked out. But what I learned was to immediately ask somebody for help, immediately tell somebody what you've done, and get it fixed. And that was the same sort of things that you learn. You, don't, you can't put stuff like that off. You can't ignore it. It doesn't go away. You have to fix it. So there's always a problem. Any problem that you have or any mistake that you've made, somebody's already made it. I've already made it. So any kid that comes to me with a problem, I've already done that. I've already screwed that up, and I know how to fix it. So those are those learning things and learning how to adapt to those and not being afraid to ask somebody for help, ask somebody for advice. There's a lot of good people here with a lot of good advice. They've been here a long time. And I read that you pay forward by basically serving as a mentor or a tutor to new Senate staffers, Democrat and Republican. What do you tell them? Well, it depends on the person, but there, there's some general advice. You know, I, I think it's important to meet with everybody and to, to explain what you've done and teach them. I think that a knowledge hoarder is an unuseful person. You know, today's staff assistant is tomorrow's chief of staff. Somebody can always learn from what you're doing, and if you don't share it with them, nobody else is going to have it. So I always encourage people to share what they know. It's really important. When I first got here, a lot of people gave me really good advice that I still use now, you know, 20-some-odd years later. So it's important to me. It helped me get where I am, and I think it's important to do that for other people, regardless. Do you remember the best piece of advice? Uh, I don't know if there's one, but one of the most memorable ones that I always tell people, 
uh, Brooke Simmons, who worked for Senator Nichols years ago, told me there's three stages of Washington. The first stage, uh, which people now call the imposter syndrome. I'm not as good as these people. I'll never fit in. They're way too smart. I'll never keep up. The second stage of Washington, I can do this. I can fit in here. And the third stage, who are all these idiots? So if you ever get to the third stage, it's time to go. I'm lucky I never got to the third stage and never been forced to leave. But it's a good reminder to people that everybody has been in that first stage. Everybody, I think sociologists call it the imposter syndrome now because you feel like you're not, not meant to be there. You're not qualified for that job. I always tell people you're never qualified for your next job. You may be eligible, but you're not qualified. Otherwise, you'd already be doing it. So never feel like you're not ready or you're not the person. They're bringing you on for a reason. They saw something in you, your experience, your education, whatever it is. You will be qualified for that job once you get to do it. So never feel like an imposter. Never feel like you're not good enough or smart enough, because you are. They brought you there. So that first stage is going to end soon, and you'll soon enough be in the second stage of Washington. Just stay out of that third stage. Our viewers see your boss, Senator McConnell, on the Senate floor, but what's he like off the floor? How can we best understand who Mitch McConnell really is? He's very much that. He is, he's, seems fairly stoic, but he's a funny guy, and he's very focused. If he has something he wants to get done, he will focus on it. He will remind you about it over and over again until it's done. He plans things out far in advance, and he doesn't care about the, which way the wind's blowing or what's happening around him. He's going to get that done. He's funny. He, uh, he has sort of a dry wit that you rarely see, uh, but he is humorous, and he cares deeply about his people, his Kentuckians, his family, his staff, which is also his family. Um, he's, I've seen empathy in him that is rare in most people. That he doesn't brag about, he doesn't talk about a lot, but I've had problems and he's called me in and walked me through it and handled it quietly, didn't you know, make a big scene out of it. But he's very empathetic, he's very funny, and super smart. And it's always a danger, I always tell staffers, be careful what you tell your boss, because they remember it. If you tell him a fact or figure or an anecdote, that's in, it's locked in, he's gonna remember it forever. He's just very clever and very smart, and he can tell you about any district in Kentucky, any state Senate race or state House race. He knows who's running, how far ahead they are, and what their family's like. And he remembers all of his former staffers, their kids, everything about them. And it's just a remarkable memory that I wish I had. But that's who he is. He's just a very calm, very calm, very smart man. He's also a tactician. He understands how the Senate works. And I want to talk about two memorable experiences that I assume you were a part of. First of all, the debate over Mary Garland mm -hmm. and whether or not to bring his nomination to uh, even a committee hearing. Yeah. What was going through his mind and what was your role in all of that? Well, it was an interesting time because we were all scattered. It was a recess. I had just had foot surgery and I was laid up at home a couple days after surgery. Our chief counsel was on vacation. Our chief of staff was gone. And the leader was on vacation as well. He had just landed when that news broke. And he didn't waffle around. He didn't you know, spend a lot of time sharing his feelings. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew it was the right decision. He gathered us all up on the phone. He told us what he wanted to do. And within an hour, we had a statement out. And he stuck to it. It wasn't some, you know, I'll change my mind if it looks like the political winds are shifting. He stuck to it, even though it looked like a Democrat would win the White House. So it was a... It was a I won't say immediate, but it was a fairly quick um, 
gathering of the staff on the phone, and we, we implemented it right away. And it was his initiative? Yes, sir. Let me ask you about the whole government shutdown, because there had been reports that there was going to be an agreement, the Senate was going to take it up, and then the president changed his mind. Walk us through all of that and what he was feeling. Was he frustrated with the White House? What your role in all of that was? Well, it was like any other sort of big nationally covered event. There was a lot of meetings, a lot of conferences, a lot of discussions with the White House and with the House. You know, a lot of what we do here is communicating behind the scenes so that we're all on the same page. I mean, we have a lot of conversations with the House. We have a lot of conversations with their staff, with the White House and their staff. So it was, it was just constant communication. There was a lot of, like almost any other big issue like that, you have to communicate constantly. So he was, he had a plan. We passed something in the Senate. The House had a different plan. Weren't able to marry those two together. Uh, but in the end, it, you know, it took a little while, but we, we got to where we needed to be. But it started out as a like any other issue where you have a lot of communication that isn't public, but it, it goes on. It's constantly behind the scenes. What has his relationship been like with presidents that he's worked with over the years? It's been good. You know, it's funny. People always say that he was always out to get Obama, President Obama, always out to get him, this, that, or the other. But he was actually the one that stepped in on some of the major deals when there was a fiscal cliff or shutdown. He was the one that worked with Vice President Biden or President Obama and got those done. It was an un unlikely pairing but he's the one that stepped up because something had to happen. And Biden, Vice President Biden had a great relationship with him and they were able to work together when President Obama couldn't. There were some things that needed to get done, but President Obama couldn't do it. So working with Vice President Biden, who had Senate experience, and stepping up and handling that, even though it was the president of a different party, was a remarkable thing that he doesn't get a lot of credit for. But it, it, it just took somebody saying, can somebody just come forward and do what you're supposed to do. I think he said at one point, Vice President Biden, does anybody down there know how to negotiate? And it eventually took Vice President Biden to get a lot of that done. Because as you know, Democrats say that Mitch McConnell said he wanted to make Barack Obama a one-term president. Of course. And I think any Democrat leader, when there's a Republican, wants, I think every Democrat in Congress wants to make President Trump a one-term president. That's not a remarkable statement. It's a political statement. Now, he also said in that same interview, but if he's willing to work with us and come to the middle, there's a lot that we can get done. And he proved that by working with them on those big issues. Uh, there's not a Democrat in town who wants Trump to get reelected. I mean, that's, that's not unusual. That's expected. So this notion that he wanted President Obama to be defeated by a Republican president was not shocking to anybody here. In fact, he was surprised when it was a, a talking point by Democrats because they would want the same thing and do. Is there one day, one moment that stands out for you? <sighs> uh, there's a lot, frankly, but I think that, that during the TARP, the fiscal crisis debate in 08, and the, when we did the TARP legislation, it was such an immediate crisis. You know, some crises that we have here develop over time, but that one was, we got to do it now. It has to be now, or here are the consequences. And having him and Democrats and House and Senate and the White House all working together on a common mission to help the country and prevent a real collapse. That was, that was something to me. And remember at the time, he was in a primary. It was an election year. And TARP was one of the most unpopular things we've ever done. It worked out, government got paid back. But at the time, that was anathema to most voters. But here he is, it would have been very easy. The political thing would have been very easy to come out and say, I'm not going to do this bailout. I'm going to let somebody else do it. I don't care if it collapses. I'm not going to take a bad vote. But he didn't do that. 
and a lot of other people. It wasn't just him, but a lot of people stepped up and did the right thing. And that was a remarkable day to me, and I'll never forget that. And during that whole time period, what was it like here in this office? Because so much was happening so quickly. Yeah, it was fast-paced. There was a lot of shuttle diplomacy, the White House and the House. A lot of meetings here, the House side, in the middle, all over the place. It wasn't frantic. People weren't screaming. But there was an immediacy to it that there's not on a lot of other issues. So people were very focused. And I think people realized at the onset, this, this is, we have to set aside our red and blue hats. We've got to get this done. And it has to happen right now. And the seriousness and the gravity of it, I think, really forced people right into the middle. And they, they were able to do it in a way that I haven't seen. Uh, but it was never a panic. It was, uh, it was surely on the brink of panic. And it was a crisis like no other. But nobody really panicked. People were calm. They worked. They figured out what they needed to do. They knew what needed to be done. And they got it done. Well, to that point, if you watch cable TV, and I'm sure you have Fox and MSNBC <laughs> and maybe C-SPAN. C-SPAN all day. But you get a different impression of the, the frenetic activity here in Washington with President Trump and Congress. My question, is it different on the inside? You're here inside, moving from office to office. Is the perception that the public gets different from what the reality is? I think the animosity among the parties is a lot more exaggerated on TV. And it's, it's in the benefit of cable TV, TV to show more animosity and more fighting. And so it's not really like that all the time. Um, Senator Schumer and Leader McConnell speak together regularly. They get along. They don't hang, hang out and have drinks, but they, you know, they get along really well, and they not have to keep this place running. They don't hate each other. Nobody has been caned on the Senate floor since the 1850s. You know, it's just not a thing anymore. It was much worse in the old days. I think having C-SPAN now maybe prevents a lot of that, but it, there, there's no longer that sort of uh, physical animosity that there that there was in the past. And people do work together. We all understand that we want to defeat the other side. We all understand that we want to win the types of votes that we want to win. And, you know, that's our job. But I don't think anybody here truly hates another person just because they're a Democrat or Republican. So complete this sentence. For the Senate to work as an institution, for Congress to work mm -hmm. collectively, this needs to happen. What is it? I think just understanding that you're not going to get everything you want. Nobody's ever going to get a perfect bill. You can't, and the Senate's designed that way. The Senate was designed to ensure that no one party or one group got everything they wanted every time. It's just not possible to do. You know, people talk about ending the filibuster in the Senate, but that's one of the things on legislation that keeps bills in the middle. You can't, it, it, except for very rare procedural reconciliation and some other things, it's impossible to pass something without the minority party. Republicans have never had 60 senators in the Senate. We have, we've had 55 um, a couple times, but we've never had the kind of supermajority that Democrats had during the Obama years. So we've always had to work across the aisle, and Democrats do. I mean, they, they can't ram something through here, we can't ram something through. So that kind of, not always a ton of cooperation, sometimes you only pick up a few from the other side, but the recognition that you're not gonna get the perfect bill to you is important. And once people recognize that and they're willing to accept 80% of something that they want or 75% of what they want, then things happen. It's when people want everything that I want or nobody else gets anything is the biggest impediment of a thing. We've already seen a change with the filibuster when it comes to judicial nominees. Do you mm -hmm. think we will see it with other legislation? I don't. Uh, certainly not while well, he's leader. 
Now, remember on executive branch, it's more of a reversion to where it used to be. There never used to be filibusters on executive branch. That wasn't a thing until uh, Bush 43. That was the first time there was sort of a concerted effort to filibuster nominations. But if you go back and look at Clarence Thomas, who passed with, what, 51 votes? He could have easily, any one member could have caused a filibuster, but they didn't. That wasn't done. People just didn't do that. It was a, a shift that happened. So now getting rid of the filibuster on nominations, all that's really done is taken it back to way the Senate operated for hundreds of years. Legislation, on the other hand, is different because, as I just said, you need that to bring cooperation and bring people into a, a bill so you don't have, I mean, the House can do that, but in the Senate we can't do that. And I don't see that going away. What's next for you? I'm going to go uh, work for a trade association, the uh, Association of Global Automakers. I'll be doing uh, communications and government affairs there. I've loved cars all my life, and I have to be able to work on a lot of the same issues that I do here and bringing, doing, in reality, what we talk about doing here, be able to help bring jobs to America and work with people that actually manufacture here in the United States. Are you of counsel? Will you reach back if Senator McConnell calls you up? He has a way of, of uh, ensuring that his family is always around him. If he ever needs anything, uh, he knows who to call. Before I came in here, one of your assistants said, be sure to ask Stu about his favorite dog dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get asked that sometimes. I don't have a favorite because they're all good dogs. Um, I have my dog who passed away a couple years ago was Casper. He was probably the best dog I ever met. Uh, but uh, I love all dogs. I love mutts, um, but I love all the dogs. Where did that come from? I don't know. Dogs are just great. If you look into a dog's eyes, you're always happy. And there's been studies that there's a chemical change uh, for a dog and for a human when they look into each other's eyes like that. Dogs really want to love you. They love you in a way that nobody else will, and they're always happy to see you. Unlike most of the people I know, a dog is always happy to see me. Two final questions. We are in, I assume, one of Senator McConnell's private offices? Mm-hmm. We call it the new hideaway. It's one of his hideaways right off the Capitol. Uh, right off the uh, Senate floor, and we have a balcony right outside. And we use this for meetings, constituent meetings, and and other things. In a few hours, as we sit here on a Friday afternoon, you will walk through these doors a final time. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, it's going to be tough. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot over the last few weeks, and it's been fine leaving, but this will be the last time as an employee who works here. Next time I come, I'll have to have a guest pass, and I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, but it has been a remarkable place to work. I, you know, I work in a museum. I work in a, a place that people want to come from all over the country to see. And I get to be here every day. And that's an amazing experience. And I, I'm going to be sad. I, you know, I'm going to be sadly. I don't really have a lot of emotions, but that one's probably going to hit me. Don Stewart, or as you're affectionately called here, Stu, thank you for sitting down with us. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This interview is also available on video. You can watch it online at cspan.org. The podcast, The Weekly, also available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.